Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. John, what do you have? I have small nucleolar ri- uh, ribose nucleic acid snored 41. Hmm. Also known as snored 41. Also known as S-N-O-R-N-A-U 41. It belongs to the CD box class of snow RNAs. Hmm. It is predicted to guide to uh, ribose methylation of the large 28S RNA on residue U4276. <laughs> Uh, that's the entire article. Eric, over to you. <laughs> All right. Well, my article is Pink Visual, which is a pornography film company. <laughs> okay, great. And, uh, you know, on the surface, that sounds like not an avenue we would want to travel down. Right. But glancing over this article, there are a couple things that are sort of interesting and there is a link to several things unrelated to the topic that are very interesting. Oh, okay. So, so you, what you're saying is an article about porn city is going to be more interesting than this article about <laughs> ribose nucleic acid? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, it might be the way to go. Now, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we're between a between a ribose nucleic acid in a hard place here <laughs> and being at the porn studio you can imagine what the hard place is so <laughs> you may as well what did you say it was pink vision pink visual pink visual alright alright so sorry ribose nucleic acid <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to miss you real bad soon basic overview they're based out of Van Nuys California and they began in internet pornography and moved to DVD production. Wait. Wait. <laughs> what you said? That seems like the opposite <laughs> direction of what you would have wanted to have done. Yeah, well. Because of, you know. They don't sound like a particularly successful um, company. But one of the interesting parts here mm-hmm. 
In September 2011, Pink Visual announced that in preparation for the 2012 apocalypse predicted by the Mayan calendar, Whoa, hold on. they what? are building a <laughs> massive underground bunker. No, wait. The bunker really? will contain all of the obvious emergency supplies and facilities, as well as a few amenities. The bunker will have multiple fully stocked bars, an enormous performing stage with a rotating hydraulic platform, in a sophisticated content production studio. <laughs> ah, I gotcha. Only and, the uh, necessities. <laughs> Apocalypse Bunker is scheduled to be ready by September 2012, and preliminary blueprints have been released. But it's 2016 now, so, so yeah, it's probably, is it done? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Did they stop since the apocalypse came and went, and we're all still, you know? It doesn't really say, but I. I find it interesting that they think that after the apocalypse that their industry will still be thriving enough to require a studio to produce more of it. Well, considering that they also don't seem to be really future oriented, <laughs> I have a feeling. I mean, when you go from when you start on the internet and then you work your yeah. way backwards to DVDs, like what's next for them? VHS? <laughs> I don't I don't but really understand their movement here. There is a link to Underground Bunker, which could lead to interesting things. That's true. And as well as the Mayan calendar and the 2012 apocalypse yes. is a link. So, yeah, you're right. Not only that, but I'm also seeing another <laughs> thing down here. I think I know what you're seeing. <laughs> uh, on January 18th, 2010, Conan O'Brien revealed that he was offered to star in a pink visual porno entitled Conan the Boob Aryan. <laughs> Among other job offers following his high-profile exit from The Tonight Show. So we do have a link to... Literally a link to the 2010 Tonight Show conflict from here. Yep. Which is amazing. Yep. Um, I remember I remember him mentioning this now. And he like made a couple of jokes at their expense, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So yeah, I am definitely interested in going to either that or Underground Bunker. <laughs> I... Oof, that's tough that's for a, me. I, it is a tough choice. Because... Because you're leaving something interesting behind either way. Underbrink, underground Bunkers could really be so interesting. I mean, there's already one that we're, we're already on one, built by a porn studio with a hydraulic <laughs> rotating stage. <laughs> I mean, there's got to yeah. be some pretty cool bunkers out there, that being the case, especially yeah. having surpassed so many recent Apocalypse. We've probably right, got some pretty yeah. modern apocalypse-proof bunkers going on someplace. At the same time, the high-profile exit from The Tonight Show in 2010 that Conan O'Brien had is always a good story to tell. Uh, yes, it's very, very fascinating, that whole situation. Kind of mind-boggling, too, to even reflect on it. <laughs> yeah. Well... I think the problem in the first place was he probably shouldn't have been hired for The Tonight Show. I think that was their first mistake. No, because, I think I mean, he would have been a fine fit for it if it had happened a few years later. I think uh, the majority yeah. of the viewing audience was much more Jay Leno's stuff. Like, and also, Jay Leno clearly didn't want to give up the uh, yeah, <laughs> spotlight. Those, those two things. I mean, you have to realize <laughs> the United States, like a lot of other countries, majority of their popul majority of our population is old. Yeah. That means, and for TV in particular, that matters because 
kids watch stuff on the internet. Anybody our age and younger watches stuff online, and then some. I mean, I know a couple parents who are cable mm. cutters at this point, and they rely on internet streaming services yeah. to get entertainment. So, um, yeah, like it was just yeah. bad, poorly timed. I, I think I think the to. real real problem was they made like a contract like all right in this date like a couple years down the line mm-hmm. you will be the new tonight show host and, and they shouldn't have made they that that far have, out yeah because they were who's gonna know like when Jay Leno is actually going to want to stop doing stuff yeah. you know yeah i mean like, like even he doesn't know this they should have just waited and been like all right there next was here we're gonna have because you know, yeah, there was some obnoxiously long transition period there, wasn't there? Like, it was four or yeah. five years out. It was yeah. the last contract they signed. Like, it was in it that Jay Leno would step down at the end of that period. Mm. And it was just like, eh, that's unreasonable for anybody. Like, <laughs> where do you see yourself in five years? Unemployed? Do you see yourself not wanting to do the thing you love doing anymore all of a sudden because yeah. we told you to? <laughs> like, that was the first, that was kind of the net, it was really the network's fault all around. Oh, yeah. It's a lot, uh, there was a lot of things on planning did. overall. Yeah. Any case, um, I feel like we've talked about it a lot now. So mm. I'm uh, now I'm like half and half still because <laughs> this time like I feel like we've already talked about all the stuff I want to talk about right. regarding the Tonight Show conflict. Meanwhile, there's also no context for the listener if they weren't paying attention to right. that at that <laughs> point in time. So. I think we have to go there, just because we've already we've already kind of gone there, All right. in a sense. All right, well, let's uh, go ahead and check out the 2010 Tonight Show conflict. That's where the link takes us. I mean, we've already kind of let you in um, on what happened, but uh, basically... Leno was the host of the long-running franchise The Tonight Show since 1992, which doesn't seem that long ago. No, but then again, you when he stepped down. <clears throat> but you know, yeah, they are long ago now. Yeah, we're, I mean, That's we're coming true. up on the what 15th anniversary of uh, September 11th. Oh yeah, like that's a long time ago now. So like, yeah. Things, time has passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just seems weird. Like, Jay Leno seems like he would have started that in, like, the 80s or something. He does seem like he came into it perhaps too late. Maybe, yeah. But it was good for him because he had a good um, following. Very good following. Too um, good of a following. Yeah. <laughs> as fate would have it. Uh, but, yeah, so Conan O'Brien was host of the of Late Night since 1993 so they pretty much came into the game together more or less and they both had strong ratings on their respective shows for like a decade or more and when Conan O'Brien's contract neared its end which uh, and he was courted by other networks in 2001 NBC extended his contract and essentially guaranteed him he would be the fifth host of the Tonight Show which is fine because, again, at that point, they didn't say when that was going right. to occur. They just said, yeah. hang out. Whenever it happens, yeah. it happens. It's yours. And uh, the n- network neglected to let Leno know this until his contract extension in 2004. 
And when they informed him that he would remain the host for five more years and then transition the show to O'Brien in 2009... Uh, yeah, when that time arrived, other networks conveyed interest in Leno. NBC, in an effort to keep both of its late-night stars, offered Leno a nightly primetime show before the local news and O'Brien's Tonight Show, which is a horrible idea because then, then all of Leno's yourself. fans yeah. go watch his show, turn the TV off before the news even starts, and go to bed. Right. And then you have nobody watching the news, and then you see how many people were only tuning the news on to make sure they caught Jay Leno's monologue right. all these years, which was embarrassing for them because, as it <laughs> turns out, it's most of the people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien and The Jay Leno Show actually both failed to attract immediate viewers. And NBC affiliates, seeing their viewership decline, grew restless. NBC Universal CEO Jeff Zucker, along with Chairman Jeff Gaspin and Executive Rick Ludwin, re- created a remedy: move Leno back to his 11:35 p.m. start time and bump O'Brien a half hour later to 12:05. Uh, O'Brien and his staff were both disappointed and furious. When it became clear O'Brien would not agree to the proposed changes, the situation grew heated. And though not a breach of either host's contract, the change resulted in a public outcry and public demonstrations largely in support of O'Brien. O'Brien's public statement that he would not participate in the destruction of The Tonight Show led to negotiations with NBC for a settlement. O'Brien and his staff received $45 million to walk away from the network with his final Tonight Show airing January 22, 2010. Less than a year he lasted on there. Yep. And Leno was reinstated as host that March while O'Brien moved to TBS to host Conan. Do you think it's a better I think it's a better fit for him anyway. He's but he needed to be able to be on cable. Yeah. Being still within that like pretty strict eleven thirty five time slot. There's not a lot that he could have done that he (laughs) would have wanted to have done. But yeah, um so yeah. Now, I mean, this playing play the long game here, though, there's a lot of background in the legacy that The Tonight Show built that kind of led to Conan O'Brien having the actions and feelings that he had uh, toward both NBC and what they were trying to do, as well as the uh, position that he was in as a host of The Tonight Show. In the early 1990s, Johnny Carson, who was the host for nearly 30 years, retired from the program at the age of 66, and the network signed Jay Leno, as Carnin, as, uh, who was Carson's permanent guest host, to become the program's fourth host upon Carson's exit. And Carson very clearly viewed the position best uh, for David Letterman, host of his own program, Late Night. Now, you're already starting to see some <laughs> similarities here, because, again, Conan came from a late night show that was on NBC... So on and so on. It's kind but, of weird the parallels that that run between these two things. Yeah, th- this is why I was saying that Jay Leno. It didn't seem that long ago because mm-hmm. Carson hosted for thirty years. Yeah. So I would have expected Jay Leno to push it well. Another the, ten. Yeah, at maybe least another ten. But nope, he was. I I don't. But well, that's the thing is but, I think if he wasn't interrupted and perhaps a little embittered yeah. by the whole conflict, maybe he would have hung around 
hung on a little bit longer, but I think he was probably pretty tired. Like, people largely misplaced blame during this whole thing. If I recall correctly, Leno was taking a lot of flack for wanting to come back, when ultimately NBC was pretty much just trying to keep both of their viewing audiences that they had built up over the years watching NBC. People involved yeah. were to blame. It was pri- most primarily the network. the network. No, yeah. I mean Jay Leno definitely probably wanted to come back. They probably offered him a very lucrative yeah. contract. He probably didn't want to leave in the first place, obviously. Right, but at the same time, it's clearly, clearly, clearly in retrospect on uh, the network <laughs> yeah. here. And I say in retrospect because at the time I was all about blaming Jay Leno oh, for everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, who, who cares? It's fun to have, like, yeah. that person. Yeah, and be like, here's this old man <laughs> coming back. He's trying to come out of retirement, some sort of annuitant host. Like, come on, <laughs> let the younger generation have a say. Rah, rah, rah. And, like, by that point, Conan's, like, 50 anyway. Like, he's... Yeah, Conan true. doesn't look old, but he's old. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, I, I also think maybe one of the reasons why Jay Leno just... Didn't, doesn't have it in him to stick around with the Tonight Show is also um, technology. Yeah, because like a lot changed. Jimmy Fallon is killing it with mm-hmm. all the internet Social stuff. Media stuff. Like that is absolutely where the audience is gravitating towards, and I don't think Jay Leno could have kept up with that or pushed that. Like he was definitely more into the same old stuff that he's been doing but yeah there was a lot a lot of 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 problems with this show as it went on but the thing is that uh conan really the thing that was made it really this whole thing enjoyable at the very least was that while this whole thing went on conan still had a show on a very prestigious network and a very <laughs> prodigious time slot. And boy, did he make a run for the gambit. For one thing, public support was overwhelmingly in favor of Conan O'Brien during the conflict, <laughs> which kind of fueled his, like, mania, I think, yeah. on the show and really made the shows kick into a darker, weirder place than you had ever seen. Yeah. I think they were some of the most revolutionary shows I have ever seen on a ta- mm. out of a talk show ever in my life and that mm-hmm. includes like cable stuff that includes daily show stuff Colbert stuff they got to some really interesting places solely because they were desperate and frustrated and angry um but in the days following the switch announce uh, switch uh, of hosts announcement 88% of related twitter posts expressed support for O'Brien uh, over 1 million people joined the two most prominent Facebook groups supporting O'Brien, Team Conan and I'm with Coco, <laughs> referring to an on-air nickname applied to Conan O'Brien during his Tonight Show reign. Artist Mike Mitchell designed a poster reminiscent of the Obama Hope poster depicting O'Brien superimposed with an American flag in the background with the caption, I'm with Coco. The poster was widely circulated and displayed on the web and at various rallies. The color orange also became the choice of color for fans of Conan, referencing his light orange hair. O'Brien's overnight ratings began to shoot up, much to NBC's (laughs) chagrin, and the viral support for O'Brien only increased by the week of his final shows. (laughs) So an ironic twist, NBC got the viewer boost they wanted all along, in perhaps the worst way possible, kind of 
Conan's last laugh. Yeah. Um, rallies in support of O'Brien were organized outside of NBC Studios, and you know that's serious when people literally start protests just to support a Tonight Show host. <laughs> like, that's... America had problems. This is post-9-11 America, yeah. and people still cared enough about this to, like, show up and protest <laughs> over it. Which is saying something, considering how much more kind of aware of real issues we were at the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, people were still just like, no, give this guy his job. Um, it was amazing. Uh, but not only did it happen in New York City, where the show was actually taking place, there were also rallies in Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, uh, it's and New York City. Uh, O'Brien briefly appeared at the January 18th rally outside the Tonight Show studio, after which he gave the proud crowd free pizza. That's how you win people over. <laughs> uh, the show's announcer, Andy Richter, and drummer Max Weinberg also made an appearance during the rally to speak to the crowd from atop the Tonight Show studio. And Tonight Show trombonist Richie LaBamba Rosenberg was driven around the crowd in a Pope-mobile-style vehicle. <laughs> American Red Cross representatives were at a number of rallies to collect money for the Haiti earthquake relief. So I guess they did sort of tie that whole mm. uh, global awareness thing that we had going on uh, back into it eventually. Yeah. Many in Hollywood expressed support for O'Brien. You had Roger Ebert, Sarah Silverman, Will Ferrell, Jim Gaffigan, Jeff Garland, Jim Carrey, Aziz Ansari, Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen, Paul Rudd, Paul F. Tompkins, Doug Benson, Amir Questlove Thompson, Alyssa Milano, Chris Parnell, Marley Maitland, Judd Apatow, Ben Stiller, Ice-T, Matthew Perry, Norm MacDonald, Howard Stern, and Ricky Gervais all convey <laughs> support for Conan uh, vocally. Seth Myers from Saturday Night Live addressed the controversy on the program's weekend update segment defending Conan O'Brien and summarizing the situation by comparing NBC to the husband of two wives <laughs> who had decided to leave one for the other and then change their mind and be married to both, angering both wives. <laughs> Myers went on to sarcastically claim that the network's hope for survival all rested on Chuck, which had experienced several problems maintaining an audience. Hence the joke. <laughs> and... Ironically, while making commentary on this, Seth Meyers may not have seen it, but he was well on his way at that point to becoming the next, uh, to becoming the ultimate successor to Conan O'Brien. In <laughs> uh, the late night slot, that is. Numerous media outlets offered support of O'Brien, such as Gawker, The Examiner, as well as less usual outlets such as advertisements running on Adult Swim. Numerous parody videos appeared on websites like YouTube and Funny or Die, also in favor of O'Brien. And that, of course, led to the criticism of Leno. Oh, yeah. He faced much criticism and increased negative publicity for his perceived role in the time slot conflict. And uh, some critics predicted that his reputation, along with those of Jeff Zucker and NBC as a whole had been permanently damaged by the incident. Critics pointed to the 2004 Tonight Show clip wherein Leno claimed he would allow O'Brien to take over without incident. Uh, actor and comedian Patton Oswalt was among the first celebrities to openly voice disappointment with Leno, saying, Comedians who don't like Jay Leno now, and I am one of them, were not like, Jay Leno sucks. It's that we're so hurt and disappointed that one of the best comedians of our generation willfully has shut the switch off. Rosie O'Donnell has been among O'Brien's most vocal and vehement supporters, 
calling Leno a bully and his recent actions classless and kind of career-defining. Howard Stern was also a harsh critic of Leno before and following the time slot change announcement. Stern appeared on Late Night in 2006 and told O'Brien that he felt it was unlikely that Leno would ever willingly give up tonight to anyone. The 67th Golden Globe Awards, which aired on NBC during the heat of O'Brien's settlement negotiations on January 17th, featured numerous jokes on the controversy by Tina Fey, Tom Hanks, and the show host Ricky Gervais. Uh, wow, man. Was that... Was it that long ago that Ricky Gervais did the Golden Globe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I don't think it was. He wasn't hosting, was he? Wait, he was. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe not. No, no, he, no, no it he, says show host Ricky Gervais. He probably came back a couple times. Yeah, because I, I think that might have been the first year he hosted. Like he made a joke the, about how he was never going to host again. Yeah, I think. And then he yeah, hosted the subsequent two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember him, his first time hosting. He was. It was like weird. Um, but yeah, let's, he says, let's get on with it before NBC replaces me with Jay Leno. And, um, in an essay for Wall Street Journal, Nathan Rabin wrote that Leno had raced past the reviled likes of Dane Cook and Carlos Mencia on the list of popular stand-ups hated by comedians and comedy writers. Um, (laughs) yeah, uh... David Letterman was one of the more adamant critics of NBC and Leno's handling of the conflict. He noted that we went through our own version of this 17 or 18 years ago, and he ridiculed Leno's recent State of the Network address, wherein Leno pleaded for viewers not to blame Conan, with Letterman noting, in the thousands and thousands of words that could have been printed about this mess, who blamed Conan? <laughs> Nobody. Uh, What's the answer? John. Uh, yeah. Yeah. John Stewart of Comedy Central's The Daily Show reflected on the controversy, saying, "At least we don't have to deal with Jeff Zucker. That guy's like the Cheney of television, shooting shows in the face." <laughs> Stewart also shouted Team Conan at his moment of zen at the end of the January 21st episode of The Daily Show. Stephen Colbert of Comedy Central's The Colbert Report asked guest Morgan Freeman to read a list of untrustworthy things, one of which paraphrased a statement made by Leno in 2004. Conan, the 11.30 slot? Yours. (laughs) At ABC, Jimmy Kimmel of Jimmy Kimmel Live donned a gray wig and fake chin pictured to the right in this article performing his entire January 12th show in character as Leno (laughs) with his band leader Cleto Escobedo part parodying Leno's band leader Kevin Eubanks I missed that one that would be interesting (laughs) to go back and find Kimmel started out his monologue with "Eh, it's good to be here on ABC hey Cleto you know what ABC stands for always bump Conan He also referenced the People of Earth letter, noting how O'Brien declined to take to participate in the destruction of the Tonight Show, commenting as Leno that fortunately though I'll I will I will I'll burn it down if I have to. Leno called Kimmel the next morning to discuss the bit. 
And at the end of the call, Lewis suggested he come over and appear on his show. When his booking department called to confirm his appearance on a 10 at 10 segment, Kimmel agreed immediately. When he received the questions for his January 14th appearance, such as, What's your favorite snack junk food? He realized Leno intended to neutralize the skating parody and paint the two as friends. Kimmel was up front with wanting to discuss the fiasco at hand and, upon his appearance, attempted to steer the questions that way. When asked about his favorite prank, he responded, I think the best prank I ever pulled was I told a guy once, five years from now, I'm going to give you my show. And then when the five years came, I gave it to him and I took it back almost instantly. Following similar remarks to more questions, Kimmel closed the segment with this comment. Listen, Jake, Conan and I have children. All you have to take care of is cars. We have lives to lead here. You've got $800 million. For God's sake, leave our shows alone. <laughs> Leno never fought back and accepted the bit as comedy. He described it as Kimmel attempting to score some publicity. But producer Vickers was furious. <laughs> it's kind of funny that... I, I just kind of envisioned somebody with the last name Vickers being furious. It's funny, though. Yeah. <laughs> Vickers was furious. Like, they're like a small, like a small cat face. <laughs> like, it's like, a, like an angry cat type person. <laughs> the only late night show that remained... Uh, late night host that remained neutral was Jimmy Fallon, who was, of course, at that point, the late night host that they had called in to replace O'Brien. He refused to take sides. Wise move. Calling O'Brien and Leno two of my heroes and two of my friends. He later joked that there's been three hosts of Late Night, David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, and me. And if there's one thing I've learned from Dave and Conan, it's that hosting this show is a one-way ticket to not hosting The Tonight <laughs> Show. Ironically, Jimmy Fallon was selected to replace the retiring Jay Leno in February 2014. <laughs> and uh, one thing that also hasn't been mentioned yet is that not only was the decision to move Jay Leno back to his 1135 slot Mm -hmm. with his new show pushing the Tonight Show back to 1205 that would also have pushed Jimmy Fallon's late night show back to like 1 1 o'clock and that was one of the main reasons why Conan didn't want to do it because it was really that's going to be that's that's totally unfair for him yeah Nobody's going to stay up past 12.30. Yeah. Like, they're not used to it. Like, people stay up late for Saturday Night Live. Yep. That ends at, like, 1 o'clock. Yeah. And that's about as far as they're willing to but go. But they're not going any... Like, they want... You want to know why Coden was successful? Because people watch the first 30 minutes of that show. Yeah. I, did this, I did that all the time as a kid. I stayed up for the monologue. Mm-hmm. Stayed up for the first couple of comedic bits they did before they brought out the first guest. As the first guest came out, sleep. <laughs> Didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because that was the good part of the show. That was like the funniest part for me. Um, very few really good things happened after that point. <laughs> I learned, so I was just like, "Well." Um, and I think America kind of followed suit there. Like putting yeah. a show at one one a.m. would have killed it. So an interesting thing. Uh, the final week mm-hmm. happened. Uh, that was when, of course, the uh, ratings really started to climb for Conan. Oh yeah, I remember that. But they were also really, they were just outrageous. completely outrageous shows. Yeah, that's the best way to describe it. Um, in the final week, O'Brien put this show up for sale on Craigslist <laughs> with a tagline, guaranteed to last for up to seven months, designed for 1135, but can be easily moved. Uh, and then himself, 
uh, a new segment looking back at clips from the show's seven-month tenure were dubbed Classic Tonight Show <laughs> Moments, and he designed a bit to seem as though he were spending absurd amounts of NBC's money, <laughs> such as customizing a Bugatti Veyron, the most powerful car in the world at that time, playing audio and video clips with expensive broadcast rights, <laughs> and using a purported rare ground sloth to spray beluga caviar on what was deemed an original Picasso. <laughs> uh, below the... Because the segments aired in the days immediately following the 2010 Haiti earthquake, while national fundraising efforts, including some spearheaded by NBC, were ongoing, O'Brien received criticism for wasting resources. In response to the outcry over the expense of these sketches, O'Brien explained that the segments were indeed jokes, and many of the props were either counterfeits or borrowed in exchange for promotional consideration. Obviously. Yeah, I would hope. I would hope. (laughs) Uh, The guest roster for O'Brien's final show on January 22nd was Tom Hanks, Steve Carell, and the original first guest, Will Ferrell. It's a good show. Yeah. It was regarded by O'Brien as a dream lineup. In addition, Neil Young performed his song Long May You Run as the show closed, which was joined by the artist Beck, Will Ferrell, dressed as Ronnie Von Zant, Billy Gibbons, Ben Harper, Conan O'Brien himself went over, picked up the guitar, Vivica Pollan, and also the Tonight Show band all together, reunited to uh, perform the Leonard Skinner song, Freebird. In his final moments on air, O'Brien stated that between Saturday Night Live, Late Night, and The Tonight Show, he had worked for NBC for over 20 years, and that he was enormously proud of the work that they have done together, and thanked NBC for the first time since announcing his intention to quit. O'Brien said his decision to quit as host was the hardest thing he ever had to do. He praised and gave thanks to his staff and thanked his fans, especially those who participated in the Los Angeles rally during heavy periods of rain for their overwhelming support and offered heartfelt advice to his viewers in his farewell address stating, and this is one of my favorite things that ever happened on Late Night TV, was this speech. All I ask of you is one thing. I ask this particularly of the young people who watch. Please don't be cynical. I hate cynicism. For the record, it's my least favorite quality and it doesn't lead anywhere. Nobody in life gets exactly what they thought they were going to get. But if you work really hard and you're kind, amazing things will happen. I'm telling you, amazing things will happen. Following the taping, the studio was used one more time with that set for a party thrown by the staff. O'Brien's monologue spot from the floor was framed and signed by his staff as a gift which touched O'Brien. 10.3 million people watched the final episode of The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien, a notably high number for live late-night viewing for a Friday night. The final episode scored a 7.0 household rating and a 4.4 rating in the 18-49 demographic. Not only did O'Brien's final show beat all late-night competition, it outscored all primetime shows in the 18-49 demographic from that night and from the night before. The night the network confirmed that Leno would officially resume as host of the Tonight Show on March 1st, and NBC reran episodes from O'Brien's time as host until the network began airing the Olympics on February 15th. Leno's first Tonight Show back pulled in a measly 6.6 million viewers, and his margin over Letterman again held for much of the rest of his run until his second Tonight Show departure in 2014. While his numbers were down from the original incarnation of the Tonight Show. It's as if a collective erase button was pushed. 
said uh, Robert Thompson, remarking on that. Robert Thompson's a professor of television at Syracuse University. Uh, the erase button having been pushed, the usual suspects are back in their usual locations, except that Conan was now gone. Yeah, and um, then uh, you can follow his uh, Conan's journey after, like immediately after the Tonight Show in the documentary Conan O'Brien Can't Stop, which is a very, very interesting documentary. Mm-hmm. It definitely sheds a light on Conan O'Brien that you don't really see in his normal show or, you know, get a kind of a peek at his, like, I don't know, not non-performer Yeah, there's definitely, persona. like, for all these guys, there's definitely a performer character, and then there's the guy who's not being a host of a show. Right, yeah. Yeah, like, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but, yeah, so, according to NBC, if O'Brien had continued hosting, it would have been the first year that The Tonight Show would have actually lost money, uh, which Leno later contended was damaging to the franchise. And this assertion was scorned by skeptical critics as it was calculated that Conan's Tonight Show would have made significantly more money in advertising than Leno's show did due to his more favorable youth demographic numbers. And also, Leno's larger staff, higher production costs, and higher salary would have all, would have by all accounts made Leno's Tonight Show more costly. And O'Brien and Ross also challenged this accusation, concluding that in order for NBC to receive such figures, they must have folded into the cost of erecting the new studio and offices alongside startup costs. And at NBC, most young employees tended to support O'Brien and join the I'm With Coco Facebook groups. NBC later asked all employees to rescind their membership in any O'Brien supporting pages. Similar action came when any effort to mention O'Brien's tenure was whitewashed from company history. That seems a little crazy. A little harsh. A little harsh. Um, Gaspin was happy with the settlement, but nevertheless agreed with one of O'Brien's points, that this show had no time to grow. Could it have grown? Absolutely. But we couldn't have, we couldn't give him the time, uh, said Zucker in an interview with Charlie, uh, no wait, that was Gaspin. Uh, Zucker, in an interview with Charlie Rose, defended his strategy, with, but noted that both shows were a mistake. Zucker, who had known O'Brien since their days at Harvard and was very close friends with Ross, was too very disappointed with how events played out, although he viewed it as necessary. Leno, in an attempt to repair his public perception, granted an interview with Oprah Winfrey on January 25th. Doesn't say what year. I'm assuming... I'm going to say 2010. I'm going to say 2010. Uh, I feel like it would have been... This whole thing started in 2010, right? It's the 2010 Tonight Show kind. Yeah. So, oh, but I, so I it, it spilled over said, into 2011. I would have said 2011, probably. But no, the Olympics were that year. So it had to be an even year. But see, this, all... this, this would have been like right after O'Brien left. Right. And um, I feel like that's when they would do it. I don't know. Maybe it could be. It could have been. 
Either way, he stripped himself of any blame for O'Brien's disappointment, noting that it was all about ratings, and also confirmed that he w- he told a white lie in 2004 when he guaranteed the Tonight Show to O'Brien. In a reference to a 2007 Super Bowl commercial starring Letterman and Winfrey, who the two had feuded for years prior, Letterman, Leno, and Winfrey all appeared in a spot airing during Super Bowl 530... I don't know, what, what is that, 40... 40, 50, <laughs> We'll go with 44, I don't know. All right. <laughs> in February 2010. Well, there you go. There's the 2010, so I guess it was January 2010. Um, the ad was Letterman's idea and was for the, f- the first time the late night hosts had met since their own 1992 debacle. And in it, Letterman and Leno sit on opposite sides of Winfrey watching the game. Letterman deems it the worst Super Bowl party ever due to Leno's inclusion and Winfrey tells him to be nice, resulting in a quip from Leno. Oh, he's just saying that because I'm here. The clip starred a, stirred a web frenzy, with commentators speculating that Leno has had been green-screened into the picture. Um, huh. Letterman had initially wanted O'Brien to be in the promo as well, but he turned it down. No effing way I'm doing that. It's not a joke to me. It's real. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, And O'Brien was sure his agreement prohibited television appearances for several months, uh, which it did, um, but gathered NBC would only be too happy to allow him a one-time repeat for the ad as it was to improve Leonard's image. But yeah, this... Oh, yes, that's... That was the thing, um... He was legally prohibited from appearing on television after yep. the Tonight Show and before his show on TBS, and, and, and that led to a tour called the Legally Prohibited from Being Funny on Television Tour, <laughs> <laughs> and that is what the Conan O'Brien Can't Stop documentary is kind of chronicling his tour there. And they show some bits from the, you know, different um, performances and stuff. And he's got some funny stuff. And sometimes I think part of it was just playing music. Like yep. he would just play songs mm-hmm. with other people, with like a band and stuff. Whoever, whichever artist was in town that he like yeah. had rapport with. It was pretty much just him messing around on stage for a while. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's part of the thing Conan O'Brien can't stop like <laughs> he just has to keep going and doing mm. things like yep. there's like it kind of shows him like falling into a depression not being able to like do stuff which is why he has to do the tour um but yeah uh NBC could have potentially retained intellectual property originating from o- O'Brien's entire 17 tenure 17 year tenure with the network O'Brien simply changed names on the tour, turning his character, the masturbating bear, into the self-pleasuring panda. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the Washington Post later reported that maintaining the characters is not a key issue for O'Brien. So, yeah, he kept kept stuff, but he just kind of changed it. Yep. But yeah, so uh, he then appeared on TBS in November 2010 with the show Conan... And and I think 
on cable, there's a lot less pressure to get ratings. Yeah, because there's they, such a smaller number of people who have yeah, it. Yeah, that it's that, not a big yeah. deal one way or the other. But um, there's actually quite a bit of uh, an interesting interesting paragraph about that. Uh, Conan, Conan premiered to pretty modest ratings, but for cable, pretty good ratings. Four million viewers is what they debuted to in November 2010. That was more than triple the audience of its direct competition, The Daily Show, and The Colbert Report at the time. But ratings did quickly fall. By the following autumn, the Wall Street Journal proclaimed that TBS's pricey Conan O'Brien experiment is flopping. (laughs) In an effort to bolster ratings, TBS secured the cable syndication rights to the Bing Bong Theory and uh, at a reported $4 million per episode for three nights a week. Uh, and that was going to u- be used as a lead-in to Conan to help boost ratings. Steve Coonan of Turner Entertainment stated in 2012 that Conan is our Mount Rushmore. We've made him the centerpiece of TBS. If success were only about ratings, we just run westerns all the time. <laughs> the show has continued to see ratings fall. However, the Hollywood Reporter credited it with forging a digital empire, his company's own shows, and a young audience. TBS hopes will follow him anywhere. The show is currently renewed through 2018. And uh, funnily enough, the a lot of the executives involved in the whole, you know, conflict uh, eventually left NBC. So, who knew? Z- Zucker was fired. Who knew? Um, and uh, Mark Graboff opted to leave his contract early that November, as did Gaspin. So. Because he was gasping for air after that. Uh, grab off any oxygen. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, uh. <laughs> Though NBC had made a considerable effort to scrub any references to O'Brien's brief tenure as The Tonight Show host following the controversy both on air and online, with one former blogger for NBC Sports noting a corporate policy banning any mention of O'Brien. It was acknowledged by the network during the build-up to the 2014 transition from Leno to Fallon. A moving image of O'Brien walking onto his Tonight set was displayed for less than one second in an on-air promo (laughs) chronicling the franchise's history. And Fallon referenced the conflict on his first Tonight Show episode when he opened the show by joking, I'm Jimmy Fallon, and I'll be your host for now. Of course, I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for the previous Tonight Show hosts, so I want to say thank you to Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, and Jay Leno. (laughs) Less than a month removed from hosting tonight, Leno appeared on the Arsenio Hall show on February 26, 2014 as a surprise guest to deliver the news that he uh, that the revived program had been 
renewed by CBS Television Distribution for a second season. This proved premature, however, as Hall's program was indeed canceled <laughs> on May 30th, 2014. <laughs> when he took over tonight, Fallon insisted that Leno is welcome to appear on the show anytime he wishes. Whenever he wants, he's got a stage. Leno made his first appearance as a guest on November 7th, 2014. However, he had previously appeared in a production uh, in a produced House of Cards parody on August 12th, 2014, in which he is revealed as the mystery man who pushes Fallon as Frank Underwood onto the tracks in front of a speeding subway train. And I think Leno just needs to stop announcing things. Yeah. Like, I think he's, he's, he has a curse. As long as he doesn't announce things, he doesn't get in trouble. Yeah. Every time he does, announcing he's stepping down, things just get real hairy real yeah. fast. It's not great. Oh, man. There's a link in here to Adolf Hitler's annexation of Czechoslovakia. <laughs> because of why <laughs> Joe Queenan from the Wall Street Journal uh, jokingly compared the controversy to that <laughs> oh. so, I like that the Obama Hope poster has its own article like it's a poster it's just it a poster and it has its own alright has its own article <laughs> um, the I'm with Coco poster that one, the but the Obama Hope poster. That's oh specific. yeah, it does have its own. <laughs> we gotta go. Yeah, we gotta see what that's about. We gotta see if that's not just a stub. Oh my God, it's an actual article. Oh my God, this is. Oh, I see what they did. They go into how it got. Okay, well I'm not gonna spoil it. All right, let me uh, let it load here. Oh, okay. It's going to be a great episode. We're going to go from a porn production company to a Barack Obama poster. <laughs> That's an episode title right there. I mean, like, how is there so much to tell about a poster? Well, you would hope there wouldn't be, but there is. The Barack Obama Hope poster is an image of Barack Obama, surprisingly enough. Designed by artist Shepard Ferry, which was widely described as iconic and came to represent Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. It consists of a stylized stencil portrait of Obama in solid red, beige, and light and dark shades of blue, with the word progress, hope, or change below, in other words in some versions. The design was created in one day and printed first as a poster. Fairly sold 290 of the posters on the street immediately after printing them. It was then more widely distributed, both as a digital image and other paraphernalia during the 2008 election season. Initially, uh independently, but eventually with approval of the official Obama campaign. The image became one of the most widely recognized symbols of Obama's campaign message, spawning many variations and imitations, including some commissioned by the Obama campaign itself. This led the 
Guardian's Laura Barton to proclaim that the image acquired the kind of instant recognition of Jim Fitzpatrick's Che Guevara poster. And is surely set to grace t-shirts, coffee mugs, and the walls of student bedrooms in the years (laughs) to come. In January 2009, after Obama had won the election, Ferry's mixed-media stenciled portrait version of the image was acquired by the Smithsonian Institution for its National Portrait Gallery. Later, in January 2009, the photograph on which Ferry based the poster was revealed, a June 2006 shot by former Associated Press freelance photographer Manny Garcia. In response to claims by the Associated Press for compensation, Ferry sued for a declaratory judgment that his poster was a fair use of the original image. Hmm. The parties settled out of court in January 2011 with details of the settlement remaining confidential. On February 29, 2012, Ferry pleaded guilty in a New York federal court to destroying and fabricating documents during his legal battle with the Associated Press. Ferry had sued the news service in 2008 after it claimed that the famous poster was based on one of its photos. Ferry claimed that he used a different photograph for the poster. But he admitted that, in fact, he was wrong and tried to hide the error by destroying documents and manufacturing others, which is the source of the one count of criminal contempt to which he pleaded guilty. (laughs) In September, Ferry was sentenced to two years of probation, 300 hours of community service, and a fine of $25,000. Wow. In 2009, Ferry's Obama portrait was featured in the book Art for Obama, Designing Manifest Hope and the Campaign for Change, which Ferry also edited. In an interview with Esquire in 2015, Ferry said that Obama had not lived up, not even close to his expectations. (laughs) He continued that to say that Obama has had a really tough time, but there have been a lot of things that he's compromised on that I never would have expected. I mean, drones and domestic spying are the last things I would have thought he'd support. So pretty scathing criticism from a guy who also just so happened to also be almost thrown in jail for uh, stealing stuff during his presidency. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't help but think that has something to do with it. Like, he's not wrong. He's definitely right that, like, yeah, there, there were some questionable compromises during the Obama presidency, but mm. I have to wonder if he's not a little embittered solely by, you know, yeah. that. Like, um... The, the poster for Veep, the TV show. Yep. <laughs> With a picture of Julia Louis Dreyfus, and underneath it says, maybe. There are a lot of different uh, parodies and imitations of this. Uh, as the campaign progressed, many parodies and imitations of Fairy's design appeared. For example, one anti Obama reversion uh, replaced the word hope with hype. While parody posters featuring opponents Sarah Palin and John McCain had the word nope. In January 2009, Paste Magazine launched a site allowing users to create their own versions of the poster. More than 10,000 images were uploaded to the site in the first two weeks. <laughs> Oof, man. It's got to take a toll on the servers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mad Magazine also parodied the hope poster with Alfred E. Newman for president. But, uh, yeah. 
And Wait, hold on. Is Alfred E. Newman that guy? That mad guy? He's the, the, the cartoon mad. guy that appears yeah. in all the mad stuff. The face, the guy with the face and the buck teeth. Yeah. yeah. Okay, just wanted to make sure, because I didn't know he actually had names. Yeah. <laughs> just knew he was the mad dude. Yep. Mad still a thing? Uh, that stops sometime between 2008 and now? No, it's still a Because I feel like like nobody watches I mean, the show, nobody <laughs> buys the magazine. If there's a website, Cracked far surpasses it in traffic. I mean... And The Onion. We could... Can we go over to... We could go over to Mad Magazine and just see if it's still a thing. You know what? Let's go ahead and do that, because we kind of know the story. This becomes a, this becomes a meme. Yeah. And uh, this, the part of the story we didn't know was the legal battles the guy had over creating the right. poster. And we have learned those things, so away with us. All right, so Mad Magazine. All right, and let's go ahead and see. Um, hmm. Don't really... Of a year's active. Yeah, started says, out in 1952. It says uh, circulation as of 2015, so it's still going, I guess. It says that it's owned by DC Comics. Huh. As it would happen. I did not know that. That's interesting. Which is, of course, under the umbrella of Time Warner, purveyor of all things dying slowly. <laughs> including the DC Universe, DC Comics, <laughs> AOL. <laughs> the Time Magazine, <laughs> Warner Cable Industries, Warner Brothers, the franchise studio, now that they don't have a successful movie franchise, which is including but limited to A, the conclusion of the Harry Potter series, and B, the non-starting successes of the DC Universe. <laughs> yes, Warner Bro- Time Warner, where things go well, to die. Apparently, Mad Magazine's still doing okay, because it's not... I don't know if okay... Going. Kmart, okay. Kmart was doing okay too. They're, they're <laughs> guess, bankrupt. Guess, they're closed yeah, and stuff now. Being around isn't this necessarily isn't, a sign of yeah. help. You can be alive and in a coma. Like, yeah, you don't you have can to be, be on life support. You can yeah. You can be barely hanging on. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's spinoffs of the magazine. Um, Mad Kids. Is no a way. There's a kids version. What? Um, I mean, obviously there was a television show. Didn't last too long. I mean, it lasted a how many seasons? I don't know. It lasted a decent amount of seasons, but it was it was trying to be Saturday Night Live, but it wasn't. It was not that. No, didn't have the uh, lasting power. Um. Yeah, it doesn't say what exactly is going on with it right now. But it but does say that it started interestingly. Compared to how we know it now, I should say. Mad begins a comic book. Just explains why it was a DC property. Oh, yeah. Why it is a DC property. I keep and why forgetting Alfred it's still Newman is an actual character. Named character. Yeah, yeah. It was located in Lower Manhattan uh, at 225 Lafayette Street, debuting in 1952. Uh, 
the in the early 1950s, the Mad Office moved to 485 Madison Avenue, a location given in the magazine as 485 Madison Avenue. Ah, oh, I see what they did there. Uh, funny joke. Funny. <laughs> funny. J- fun. The title is trademarked in capitals as Mad. The first issue was written almost entirely by Harvey Kurtzman and featured illustrations by Kurtzman along with Wally Wood, Will Elder, Jack Davis, and John Severin. Wood, Elder, and Davis were the three main illustrators throughout the 23-issue run of the comic book, but you and I, and, well, you and I barely know Mad as a magazine, yeah. let alone as a comic book, so <laughs> suffice it to say, that stopped. Yeah. To retain Kurtzman as its editor, the comic book converted to magazine format as of issue 24, which was published in the year 1955, three years after it started. The switchover only included Kurtzman, or rather only induced Kurtzman to remain for one more year, but crucially, the move had moved mad from the strictures of the Comics Code Authority. After Kurtzman's departure in 1956, new editor Al Feldstein swiftly bought aboard contributors such as Don Martin, Frank Jacobs, and Mort Drucker, and later Antonio Prohias, Dave Berg, and Sergio Aragones. The magazine circulation more than quadrupled during Feldstein's tenure, peaking at 2,132,655 issues in 1974. Wow. It later declined to a third of this figure by the end of his time as editor. When Feldstein retired in 1984, he was replaced by the team of Nick Meglin and John Ficara, who edited Mad for the next two decades. Since Meglin's retirement in 2004, Ficara has continued to edit the magazine. They've been at it for a while. <laughs> yeah. And Geez was uh, Feldstein's uh, rise and fall very short. <laughs> I mean, he peaked in 1974, he was out by 1984, yeah. and he was already down by a, down to one-third of that peak number. Yeah, you really... Uh, he fell off fast. He broke mad. Yeah. Pretty bad. He's breaking mad. <laughs> Feldenstein. <laughs> um, so the interesting thing, a couple of interesting things I'm seeing here. First off, the comic book was published by EC initially. EC? EC. Not DC, EC. Easy to confuse the two. Easy to confuse them, I should say. Haha, <laughs> Mad Magazine jokes. Um, but the interesting thing that I'm seeing is that there's a Comics Code Authority that they yes. deviated from, or they wanted to, humor-wise, so they moved to the magazine format. What do you, what do you know about that, Eric? Do you know anything without us having to bounce over there? Well, I do know the Comics Code Authority is similar to the... Um, the film, the film equivalent, uh, back in the '40s and '50s, where they said, oh, "Hey, okay. you can't do this and that and this." Right. There are guidelines for what you can portray right. and what you can have on screen, what you can yeah. talk about. Like, because you couldn't say certain words, mm-hmm. and you couldn't depict certain things, and couldn't um, allude to certain things. Even right. There yeah. were some things you were, like not allowed to think about hitting kids. Yeah. Like no, no <laughs> violence involving children. Yeah. So yeah, that. 
the comics code was like very strict rules that comics had to follow. Um, like base, like anything up through the '60s, I believe, was still under the code. So, like all of your favorite superheroes started out that way, following the code. It's probably why Batman was initially like a way detective. less dark. <laughs> yeah, he was a detective. He was a detective who wore a suit. Yeah, a strange suit. Um, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. They were a lot to me. more tame. Yeah, and didn't really delve into deep issues too often. But at the same time, I feel like it's kind of odd that magazines, maybe magazines were just around for too long by that point for there to be any real, like, code for them. Right. Because magazines being a print form of media had been around eons. Oh, um, yeah. Compared yeah, to back in the 1800s, they had magazines. Yeah. Like, that's, so that's like, I guess I can kind of understand, like, how they could transition yeah. their humor into a normal magazine format and get away with it because there probably wouldn't have been any sanctions or codes because mm-hmm. magazines kind of were, kind of predated that mindset yeah. just by a hair. They had reached their tenure, for sure. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I kind of see why they made that jump then. It allowed them to be a little more gritty and push the envelope of what comedy can be. Yeah. Really made people <laughs> mad when they did it, too. Uh, Gaines sold his company in the early 1960s. I don't know who Gaines is. Who's Gaines? Are we talking about Gaines? Gaines? Who's Gaines? So it says. It's literally it the next Gaines. paragraph right after I stopped. Uh, there ain't Gaines? nobody named Gaines. Gaines, Gaines mentioned? No, Gaines was not mentioned. Rogaine. No, Gaines. Oh, no. Uh, the magazine was founded oh, by editor uh, and publisher William first. Gaines. Okay. Yeah. So William Gaines must have been some big EC guy or something. Okay. But in any case, okay, so William Gaines, the publisher, sold his company in the early 1960s to the Kenny Parking Company. Which also acquired National Periodicals, which is also known as DC Comics. And uh, the Kenny Parking Company uh, apparently also acquired Warner Brothers by the end of that decade. <laughs> so what the heck is a Kenny Parking Company? <laughs> uh, anyway, Gaines was named a Kenny board member and was largely permitted to run mad as he saw fit without corporate interference. So is the Kenny Parking Company... Something that owns one, all, that whole thing? Hmm. What is... What? Are they just... Literally a parking lot? They're actually... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Buying a magazine. <laughs> I guess we can wrap up on this article, because this is kind of interesting. That... This is kind of a mind twist. This is kind of a twist on everything. The Kinney Parking Company. So we're going to go from here. All right. Since we know Mad is a magazine that became an ill-advised TV show that wasn't as good as SNL, which is saying something considering when it was competing with SNL. <laughs> um, yeah, so they were a New Jersey parking lot company. Parking wasn't a name. Parking was what they did. <laughs> <laughs> Owned by Manny Kimmel. Sigmund Dornbush and mob figure Abner Zwillman. 
Prior to its public listing in 1960, it merged with a funeral home company, Riverside, and then expanded into car rentals, office cleaning firms, and construction companies. So they really just kind of threw it all out there and they're like, all right, let's try this random thing. And in 1966, uh, the firm merged with the National Cleaning Company to form Kinney National Company, headed by Steve Ross, who had joined Riverside after marrying Carol Rosenthal, owner Ed Rosenthal's daughter. And Ross pursued an aggressive expansion of the company's properties, Hmm. first acquiring Ashley Famous Talent Agency, Mm -hmm. then Panavision. Wait, really? And then in 1969, Warner Brothers Seven Arts. Um. (laughs) Uh, After a financial scandal in the parking division, the non-entertainment assets were spun off again in 1972 as National Kinney Corporation. And the remaining company was renamed Warner Communications, the precursor to today's Time Warner Media Empire. What? (laughs) National Kinney expanded from parking and building services into real estate development by purchasing the Yoris Buildings Corp. But but the timing was bad, and the New York's real estate market collapsed in the 1973-1975 recession. And the main Yoris building asset was soon lost to foreclosure. In 1979, after some protracted negotiations, National Kinney attempted to purchase the Aladdin Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas from New Jersey in a joint venture with Johnny Carson. Well, there's a parallel. <laughs> that, that's weird that we came back to that. Okay. Planning to rename it after the star. However, Carson's wife, Joanna, gossiped about the deal and subsequent trading in the National Kinney stock led to insider trading charges against third parties by the SEC and the disgorgement of profits. Oh, disgorgement. Yeah, that's a nice word. Yeah. And in 1982, National Kinney sold its National States Electric Division to an undisclosed buyer and then agreed to sell its parking subsidiary, Kinney System Incorporated, which was the original company, (laughs) to that division's chairman, Daniel Katz, and a group of investors. National Kinney subsequently renamed itself to Andow Corporation and sold its remaining majority interest in Kinney System Parking. Andow invested in the declining Steve's Ice Cream and merged with Swenson's before selling them off and unwinding its last operating subsidiary. So, ultimately it became Time Warner. Yeah. But well, then it, the part that wasn't Time Warner just kind of wandered off and tried <laughs> to make parking, tried to make a, a hotel named after Johnny Carson, tried to make ice cream, and then died. Right? It's, yeah. <laughs> Seems to be what happened. <laughs> But well, I'm still bo- my mind is still boggled by the fact that a company from New Jersey, not New York City, New Jersey, responsible for parking cars, which by that point in history were they that big of a deal? <laughs> and right. a parking company, yeah, because this was bought Time Warner 1960. They like- bought they are Warner Communications. Yeah. The people who eventually made Warner Brothers, as we know it today, 
owned a bunch of parking lots. They're a parking company. Yeah. That. Well, that's enough Wikipedia for one day. <laughs> and they also had Panavision. So they had the cameras. Yep. And then they were like, all right, let's use them with let's Warner Brothers. Let's use them for the Warner Brothers. So they may as well, like, right? But like, I didn't know Warner Brothers was doing so bad in 1969 that this parking lot company was like, all right, hey, let's buy, let's buy, buy Warner Brothers. major movie studio. Let's they buy also, one of the big five movie studios. But they How also had like a vertical monopoly. <laughs> like the nobody caught this. I mean, like it's bad enough they're a parking company and they already built parking garages. They literally have a vertical monopoly yeah. on parking. But then, and then they car they, rentals. They got they got Panavision. They got the company that makes the cameras. They got the company that uses the cameras, and they got the company that casts all the actors and finds all the talent. And because the they company the talent agency. that gives all the cars to the talent. And, and the, the production, <laughs> and the everything else, and the company that cleans all the offices. I mean, that's brilliant, really. And the bu- company that builds all the sets. So, and the studios. Wow. And so they literally bought. Nobody cares, but they've bought. They have a vertical monopoly <laughs> on movie making, and nobody's nobody mentions this. I've never heard this company's name in my life. Yeah, well, they must be doing good if they're uh, keeping that hidden. It must be that mob figure. I mean, it's not <laughs> hidden. It's right here on Wikipedia. That's all there is. But then again, you're right. We talked about the mafia last week, and yeah. they were all bearing everything on Wikipedia after having killed a journalist <laughs> for reporting about some of it. Yeah. Kind of ironic. It's almost Man. as though you don't need to kill people. <laughs> just crazy. That's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Parking lot company. Well, there you have it. From Pink Visual to Kinney Parking Company. <laughs> uh, go ahead and visit facebook.com slash TWC podcast. Give us a like and follow. Go over to iTunes and rate and review us. And if you don't have iTunes, you can check us out on Stitcher. You can check us out on Google. You can find us anywhere. We even have our website, twc.ericteribio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Manuel Romain for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. That was an adventure. Oh, yeah. In fact, we ended up with a little Johnny Carson throwback there at the very end, too. Like, that that was pretty nice. It's pretty good. Let me stay while away.
Love and love and love you as the 